Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I like to watch women doing little domestic chores. (laughs) (laughs) One of the, I'm glad you picked that out there because that is really one of the creepiest moments in this film that we're about to talk about. <laughs> and you deliver it so well. I, I really went all in on the skeeziness of it. You Josh, did. But. You did indeed. And it was nice work. So, um, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we are talking about the films of 1975. And we are here at my pick, which is The Stepford Wives, the. I guess it's usually categorized as a horror movie, although I don't know how horror it really is until maybe the very, very end. But uh, based on the novel by Ira Levin from 1972, who, of course, you know, in the horror genre is mainly known as the author of Rosemary's Baby, which had already been a big hit movie seven years before this, I think. And uh, this has, as as many of the reviews that I found uh, to quote here pointed out, this does have a lot of similarities to Rosemary's Baby with its uh, female protagonist who is being sort of gaslit in a sinister way by her husband as well as basically everyone around her and this conspiracy that closes in around her. That one taking place in New York City and this one in the suburbs. But they they definitely have some thematic similarities. And uh, of course, I feel like this is one of those movies that even if you don't actually know anything about it, Everyone knows what this movie is about because the concept of it has become this general pop culture idea. The idea uh, that these uh, independent women are being replaced as sort of uh, mindless suburban housewife drones. And that's what we got going on here. Well, Josh, uh, anyone could be replaced at this point with the way AI and robots are going. So we'll, we'll see. It's going to be all types of replacements. We're going to be replaced. Awesome movie year hosted by two robots. Yeah, I can't wait for that. I mean, I'd be so the first fun. one to go, guys, since I produced the show. But <laughs> True. You're out, Dave. You're gone. Yeah. Um, so this movie, it was a successful film. Uh, it grossed $4 million. I couldn't find a budget on it, but did decently well at the box office. And that, of course, led, as we'll talk about later, to some sequels slash spinoffs or Weird kind of. Yeah, I was hoping you watched all of those. <laughs> uh, I did actually watch some of one of them, kind of half watched it as uh, as I was putting my notes together. So uh, we can delve into that in a little bit. But this was a hit based on a popular novel. So, you know, an anticipated film that was uh, that was a box office success. The screenplay was adapted by William Goldman, who is sort of a as as big a screenwriter as there's ever been i'd say yeah right? exactly and, and and an icon yeah. of screenwriting like as a profession and as a craft i think yeah and directed by brian forbes a british director who this was his most high profile work in the u.s and is still probably his most well-known film uh catherine ross is the star as joanna the woman who moves to the suburbs and discovers something Miss and she she did win an award uh, a best actress award at the Saturn Awards which is the kind of sci-fi genre uh, award ceremony but this movie didn't get anything really in terms of mainstream awards attention and it was not all that well reviewed at the time that it came out either. Well, I wasn't around then, Josh. So you're just going to have to give me those reviews so I can hear the proof of that. Yeah, I was looking. I mean, it was it was maybe mixed, or at least that was kind of what Wikipedia claimed. Uh, And you go to Rotten Tomatoes, for example, and it has like a 69%, which is sort of mixed to positive. But the majority of those positive reviews are retrospective reviews from more recent times. And at least what I was able to find and that was accessible to me online to read and to quote was mostly negative. So I love this movie. I picked it, but I'm going to give you a bunch of negativity about it here right now. But Josh, as we know, you know, just because you love a movie doesn't mean you have to pick it. And even if you don't love a movie, you can pick it. That's how we go on awesome movie year sometimes. True. One time you picked a movie that you didn't like and had never seen. So I like to pick movies that I've never seen and don't like. Yeah. Well, I do like this movie quite a bit. And that was why I picked it. But other uh, people at the time, not not so much. So Roger Ebert said, it's never really believable. But it tries to be. 
and it would have had a better chance as straight satirical comment. I can imagine similar material being directed by, say, Woody Allen, and coming out pointed and funny. Instead, director Brian Forbes gets all solemn and spooky and goes for obvious effects like bolts of lightning and forbidding gothic mansions. Since the material just plain doesn't work on this level, the movie doesn't work at all. But it's an interesting conception, and the actresses involved are good enough, or have absorbed enough TV, or have such an instinctive feeling for those phony, perfect women in the ads that they manage all by themselves to bring a certain comic edge to their cooking, their cleaning, their gossiping, and their living deaths. What's the matter? Why do you always want to go back to New York? <laughs> We're here in Stepford. It's beautiful. Everyone's so nice. <laughs> not an impression I was expecting in this season, given that we were not talking about a Woody Allen movie. But I guess that is sort of a glimpse into what Roger Ebert wanted out of this film. <laughs> I, I don't know. I totally would be so. Uh, I mean. I can't even picture that at this point in time from what we got to where that would be. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess Woody Allen sort of dabbled in sci-fi in a way when he made Sleeper, but this doesn't to me seem like the kind of material, especially based on a novel that's not comedic at all, that would fit with his sensibilities. And I, and having the advantage of having seen the 2004 version directed by Frank Oz that does play it for comedy and is awful, I think Ebert's totally wrong about this. Yeah, I feel like I've seen that, but I can't say for certain because that was with Nicole Kidman, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw that. But then she didn't she also do Bewitched? She did. Yes, she was big on the remakes around that time. And that was terrible. I remember that. So I'm like, I'm like, did I see this terrible Nicole Kidman remake (laughs) of a movie or that one or both? Yeah. Yeah, they're both bad. I would if you're if you're unsure, I wouldn't recommend like putting in the effort to to confirm it you know, by watching. I'm not good. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's no good. So I know, I mean, obviously I I don't agree with what Ebert says. I think the the sort of gothic tone of this movie works perfectly. I like the way it's directed and I think there's some dry humor to it, but if they had overplayed the comedy, it wouldn't have worked well as you can see. Yeah, you know who should have remade this is Park Chan-wook. That would have been interesting, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's something. So I figured it was good also to get women's perspectives, even though they didn't like it any more than Roger Ebert did. But, um, (laughs) Some women did. Some women did. Yeah. I mean, there were there were there was division in sort of the prominent feminist response to this film, which in a way to me is surprising. And I think, again, if you look at the retrospective assessment of this film, it's considered a very much a feminist movie. But at the time, some prominent feminist activists felt like it was not that. Um, Yeah. But I think I remember when we were talking about that and you were like, these women, they can't even agree with each other. Why are we letting them vote? (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like something I would say. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) So uh, Janet Maslin in the Boston Phoenix said, the specific premise of the Stepford Wives is nowhere near as good as that of Rosemary's Baby, nor is the film adaptation. Though the menace here is feminine zombieism in the suburbs, rather than devil worship in Dakota, it's treated too literally to have metaphorical shadings, and the screenplay's persistent telegraphing puts Western Union to shame. I understand that there are feminists who choose to be philosophical about Stepford. It's interesting, they say, because at least it gives you some idea of what men's ideas about womenly perfection really are. If I were a man, I'd find that damned insulting. Mm, I'm a man. Yeah, are you insulted by this film? Oh, I gotta think now. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna go scratch myself and eat a sandwich. All right, that's gonna make for a good podcast. <laughs> I was not insulted by this film. No, nor was I. Nor, nor I feel like would would any men really be uh, or should be. I don't think that that's what it's aiming for, and I don't think that's its effect. It, it seems like they've missed. Like you know, no one is saying like there is. Like, if you want to say it's sci-fi or satire or whatever it is, right? Like, none of us, I don't think the men are like, yeah, this is really, this is really what, it's like a heightening of something, right? Right. We're not saying this is like the base level of what uh, all men want here. No, but of course it has elements of reality in it. I mean, that's why it works as satire or science fiction, because there are men who want, if not literally what is in this film, something akin to what is in this film or women who would act like the Stepford version of of what's in this film. Yeah. Why aren't you making me that sandwich? 
Yeah. Should I be your Stepford <laughs> wife here on this podcast? Well, some people have said we're we're married anyway. Yeah. So yeah. Why not? Maybe. Uh, I'll I'll give you a virtual sandwich because we're not. <laughs> I like to room. watch Josh make me sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. And uh, Molly Haskell in The Village Voice uh, also didn't have time for this film, really. She said, this adaptation of Ira Levin's best-selling, quote, horror story is one of the silliest movies in years, but it's so silly you might enjoy it, and it offers an almost irresistible metaphor as its premise. I suppose The Stepford Wives could qualify as a good-bad movie, although or because it is full of irritating holes and implausibilities, and I would have preferred it if Goldman had chosen to develop some of the juicier possibilities. In trying to be more than science fiction, in aspiring to social commentary, The Stepford Wives winds up less. Beneath all the women's lib paraphernalia, this is just one more sermon on the numbing effects of suburbia and television a vision of chic mindlessness, which must envelop its heroine in its final enemy. I kind of like the idea of talking about it more of like the banality of the suburbs more than like, hey, this is the men, uh, the men's idea of women, you know, but um, I guess those go hand in hand. I, did you guys think of white noise uh, when you were watching this and, and kind of everything? This definitely felt like this influenced the uh, the Bombac version of that story. Yeah, I did. I did think of that. I mean, there's clearly and we'll talk more later about this. I'm sure a lot of influence that this film has had on horror and science fiction and this kind of satire, both good and bad. I, but I mean, I guess on the one hand, it is sort of a cliche that as she's saying to say, oh, you know, the 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 suburbs are banal or they they leech the life and the vivacity out of people who move to the suburbs or whatever. But I don't think that's all that this movie is doing. I think that it's good to talk about it in reference to both of those things, that the suburbia, as well as the men's view of women. And uh, I mean, the my, the effect of television, I don't think anyone in this movie even watches television that I can recall. Yeah. But Josh, you, of course, have been members of many men's clubs. So <laughs> why don't you tell us about that? No, the first rule of men's club is you don't talk <laughs> about men's club. Oh, uh, now we're just going all over. The whole history of awesome movie are being put on display here. <laughs> but I mean, Fight Club is another movie that is absolutely influenced by this, I think. And so which is one that I picked in that season. So, I mean, this is clearly a theme and a sort of uh, idea, a stylistic approach that I like. And uh, that's okay. Do you feel that way, Josh? You live in the suburbs here of Las Vegas. Do you feel like the burbs are are bringing you down from your uh, all your vivaciousness? Not really. I mean, the thing about Las Vegas is that like almost all of it is is suburban esque. I mean, other than a like couple streets downtown or whatever, uh, it's pretty hard not to live in a suburban seeming area of Las Vegas. But no, I I think uh, you know I don't have a a wife, a Stepford wife or a wife of any kind or a spouse or children or anything. So I don't think I'm living the the suburban life that that gets satirized in movies like this. You you yeah. are more so. I have a kid yeah. and I don't have a wife. I'm waiting for the robot to come in. <laughs> right. Is that on back order for you? <laughs> not, the, not the first guy to wait for a robot wife, right? I mean, this is a normal thing now, right, fellas? Totally. It is more normal now than it was in 1975, I would say. Yeah, well, technology, like we talked about in the Jaws episode. So, you know, robot shark wife. <laughs> robot shark wife is the title of your <laughs> memoir. Or the next movie you're covering for one of those mm -hmm. websites. I, I absolutely <laughs> would be covering that movie. I think that's probably going to be made soon enough. Uh, um, Jason, had you ever seen this movie before? Yeah, I, I'm guessing I probably saw it before the remake, which I seem to have blocked out of my memory. Right, so. right. Yeah, and I probably did too. I was trying to remember when I first saw it. And, and I really liked <clears throat> it because a couple years ago, I wrote an article about it and I pitched to write about it because I had seen it and had really liked it, but I can't remember exactly when that was, but I had just watched this again a couple years ago and written about it and thought it held up really, really well. And I still think that I feel like maybe some of the reactions from critics at the time were driven by what was going on at the time. And I think one of the reasons that this movie is good is that because it's still, I mean, unfortunately seems actually quite relevant and it holds up really well. It has stuff to say that, that 
we can still relate to now. Yeah. And now it's almost like I said, with AI and all this stuff, it's almost a different relevance now, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something that you could imagine being more plausible where these reviews are, you know, Molly Haskell is talking about, oh, how ridiculous and all the plot holes and whatever. But it's like, it's not all that far off from what could theoretically be done. I mean, there's a, the whole bit where Joanna, Catherine Ross's character, one of the things that she has to do in order for them to like copy her into a robot is read all these different words onto a tape recorder. And that's literally a thing that AI does now. You, yeah. you say words and it can copy your voice. Like that is a thing that exists. Right yeah, now. absolutely. And by the way, not just AI, but the rise of incels too makes it, uh, you know, something that could be uh, referenced here too. Yeah, they're they're the ones who really they want to join the men's the men's association or whatever for real. The one if you were wondering who those people are, Jason. I think if we got them robot wives and things might be better, you know. I don't know. Jason Harris says buy incels robot wives. <laughs> well, if it prevents violence, why wouldn't you? So I'm not saying replace I'm not saying replace humans with robots for the incels i'm saying give them robot wives why not all right so. yeah okay that's cool uh, i'm i'm, I'm yeah. not necessarily opposed to that <laughs> yeah i can stand by that statement dave has a real wife he's the one of uh, among the three of us speaking of robots <laughs> Had you seen this before, Dave? Uh, like both of you, I was a little foggy on whether I had. Uh, I, I, I'm sure I had at some point, probably right before the Nicole Kidman one, like you guys both said. But uh, yeah, that that would have been the last time. And while watching it, I was like, did I see this? Like it kept like blending in with that one. And uh, it's better than that one by a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it's way better. Again, I, I mean, I haven't seen that one since it came out, but I remember not caring for it. No, no one really did yeah. at the time. And, and it really does. No one liked. It, it, it makes it into a comedy, which I think just, and the wrong kind of comedy too, yeah. just, um, is the, the wrong approach to the material, you know, but we'll never know what Woody Allen could have done with it. <laughs> that could have been good. <laughs> hey, uh, there's still time left, right? There is. He's still making movies. He's got a new one coming out soon. Um, <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about on the the background of this film? Uh, yeah, Jason? well, we mentioned William Goldman, obviously, as the writer here and uh, as a legendary writer. Mm -hmm. He was not uh, happy with this movie. He thought that Forbes rewrote a lot of it. And I pulled this quote, uh, could have been very strong, but it was rewritten and altered. And I don't think happily. I know he was pretty pissed that uh, Forbes cast his wife in the film. I think she played Carol in there. And uh, he said, or he played, she played Carol, right? And he said that kind of like, in his mind, all the women were supposed to be like playboy bunny looking. And then, you know, she's a little older, a little more, whatever you want to say, like kind of uh, woman next door looking, shall we say? And uh, I think he was saying that kind of defeated the purpose of what he was going for there. Yeah, I, I think he's totally wrong about that. I mean, not only is she perfectly good in that part, but I think the whole idea is they're copies of the actual women and so unless everyone who moves into this town already has a playboy model looking wife like not all of them would look like that right 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 you would think they would yeah josh you're advocating for robot wives of all kinds and i get that i, get I want that. robot wife equality mm -hmm. yeah no and, and you know you're very progressive that way thank you yeah <laughs> all right well we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on the stepford wives Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1975. We are talking about my pick, which is The Stepford Wives. And I just read a bunch of negative reactions to this film from critics. But like I said, this is the third time I've watched this. And the last time was just a couple years ago. And I just feel like this movie is really smart. It's really well made. It's, it's very well acted. Catherine Ross is super underrated. And I think we talked about this when we did our episode on The Graduate, but she is really, really good in this film in the role of Joanna. And again, sadly, still relevant. But I feel like there were even small details that either I don't know that I missed or that I just noticed again in this film where right from the start, it's creating this environment of sort of gaslighting all these women who come into this suburb and are being molded even before they're literally being replaced they're being sort of, uh, you know, herded in a way into this position that all the men want them to be in. I also took from it the from the technical standpoint, uh, the way Forbes, 
First, I think it's interesting that she's a photographer and we are getting all these kind of long lens shots of her and all these other characters. But there's such a voyeuristic quality that he's really done well with. Not, you know, we're watching characters, characters are watching other characters. And I thought that really ratcheted things up for this thing. Yeah. And I don't know if she's a photographer in the novel, but it definitely is a conscious choice here to lean into that and the idea of her observing other people and sort of bringing her perspective and the way that that changes or could change. And of course, one of her final pleas is talking about how, you know, one day, you know, you'll see the woman and she'd, she'd, she'd seem like me, but she won't take photographs. And that's like such an essential part of her personality and of her being. Yeah, I guess, you know, you could, you could state that like one thing is like they moved to Stepford because, you know, it's a better life or this or that, you know, that's what the husband says, but we don't see that though the husband and the wife really have problems, you know, and we don't see that he would like when they move there want to replace her, you know? So I guess you could say like they could have sprinkled that in a little more towards the beginning that they were already on the rocks before. Cause I, you know, I get it. Like he's, you know, he's in the men's club and, He wants to be one of the boys and everything, but there's really nothing in there where it's like he gets brainwashed or, you know, everything where he's like, yes, I have to replace her. So I guess you could make that as an argument against it. Yeah, maybe. Although I feel like it's part of the point that they don't have any marriage. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, that they seem happy with each other. And she does say how that she's annoyed that he's kind of made these decisions without her. But it doesn't seem like they're on the rocks, really anything like that. And she isn't even necessarily opposed to moving to the suburbs. It's just when she learns more about what Stepford is all about that she gets upset more. I feel like there is almost like, and maybe I'm giving the movie too much credit, but I feel like there's almost this background arc of him having that kind of conflict that you're talking about. And I think there's one scene where you see him you know, they're arguing and he goes and sits in his little study and you see him. It's it's like he's in the background through the doorway and he's sitting there. And I feel like you can see this anguish on his face where he's almost like sort of deciding what he's going to do. They're having all these arguments and he's coming to the point where he's like, yeah, this is what we're going to do. And again, maybe I'm giving you too much credit, but I feel like there was something going on in the background there. Classic Josh reading into scenes what he wants to on his own picks. Um, I know the scene that you're talking about. I just took it as like, you know, the banal night in the suburbs and, you know, they were starting to have the problems, but I didn't get to the point where I was like, oh, this is a turnkey moment for him where he's going to step for his wife. Right. Well, and that's fair. I mean, I'm not saying that you're wrong. And I think that could have shown something more like that. And in a way, because they're not having marital problems at the beginning, the fact that he eventually goes along with it too could show like the power of Stepford. Like even this guy who doesn't seem like he would do something like this eventually gets caught up in it. And we don't, I get that. I I guess it's just the different, you know, we're in the seventies, right. And us kind of auteur type filmmaking. And I think, you know, had it been made today, they would have uh, laid those points out more heavily. And I'm not certainly not arguing, hey, William Goldman should have done this. I'm just saying you could say like, hey, we would um, it might have made sense to see a little more of that. Yeah, I think that's true. But I also do think that it could easily have overloaded on exposition. And some of the things that some of these critics are complaining about, about plot holes or Molly Haskell, too, said she wanted to see more inside the men's organization or whatever. Like, I feel like a modern movie would have a tendency to overdo that and over explain everything and lose the mystique of it, part of it, what's scary about it is that Joanna doesn't really know what's going on and never really quite understands what's going on and and yet is still caught up in it. And that's that's scary. And you liked I mean, there is a bit of a tone change from Acts one and two to act three, where you would say that's the most horror like yeah. of the bunch. Did you you obviously thought that tone change worked well for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think it goes over the top horror. It's not gory or bloody or anything like that. And I do think they've established this kind of gothic-ish tone that uh, one of those the critics are talking about there with the the men's association in the building it's in, that old house that it's that it's in. And I feel like it's an escalation that it does work and that it embraces the horror. I guess, I mean, there's certain parts of it, if you don't know what's going on, which again, I think this is a movie that is so 
perme has permeated pop culture so much that it's really hard to come into it not knowing what's going to happen. But if you don't know what's going on, the middle part of it could be a more science fiction-y thing or something. There's the whole sequence where they try to test the water. Uh, Joanna and her friend Bobby, played by Paula Prentice, who is the one other kind of, quote, normal person in town. They're trying to figure what's going on. They go see this chemist who is an old flame of Joanna's. And you could see it going in a more science fiction-y direction there. And I, I like that it goes full-on horror, but that is a scene where, I mean, I guess you could argue that it's sort of like not figuring out the tone properly as it meanders through the middle part of the movie. I mean, you brought up a good point, the middle part of the movie. It does drag in act two, right? However you feel about act three, I think acts one and act three like really move and it does drag a little bit in the middle of act two there. Yeah, I mean, it struck me watching that particular scene, like you could have taken that whole part out without really affecting the plot in any way. I do like that scene because I think it demonstrates because the chemist is not just some guy and he's actually Joanna's ex that she sort of maybe regrets a little bit having broken up with. That's what I took out of that scene more of like, yes, he's like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with your water. But then they have that moment where it's like, we really blew it, didn't we? And he's, she's like, who's to say? And it's like, you know, everyone looks back in their own ways. And I, I thought that was more... Um, that stuck with me more than the the result of the water test. Right. You know? No, and I totally agree. And I, I feel like maybe it's one thing where it's like a red herring. And again, if people who are coming to this for the first time and didn't know what was going on, they want to be keep, want to keep them in suspense in some way. And that's the purpose of that scene. But I like that there's more going on there. And there's a lot of specificity. She describes her relationship with him and the little in-jokes they had and stuff like that. And so you understand what it means to her when she has that interaction with him. I, I, you know, one thing that I found a bit confusing is they do have kids, right? Yeah. And like kids are perceptive. You don't think they would notice mommy's different now. You know what I mean? Like that's a whole different thing. That is true. That is true. I mean, and they are perceptive enough that there, there's one scene when they come in and they say, are you fighting or whatever? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's one of many things where if you pull at the threads here too much, you you could easily think about like, well, in reality, this would not work at all. <laughs> this would not be a workable scenario for these men, even. Um, yeah, I mean, but you keep trying. Josh. Yeah, but but I, I feel like that's not what this is going for. That's why kind of the gothic horror tone of it works for me, because this is an allegory. It's not a realistic film. It's not naturalism. Um, and I'm OK with that. But, you know, you're not wrong to bring up that question. There is one scene where they're talking to. Uh, I think it might be Carol or one of the Stepfordized wives and she's busy like combing her daughter's hair and then she gives her a kiss and the daughter doesn't seem to think anything is amiss with that one. Yeah. You mentioned Paula Prentice, who I think is great in the movie. Oh, yeah. I think, right, the best scene in the movie is probably, you know, spoiler alert here, where uh, Joanna stabs Bobby and, uh, you know, to see what would happen and she's already been... Uh, robotomized shall we say sure. you know and it kind of short circuits here and she's like pouring coffee on the ground now why would you go and do a thing like that now coffee now why would you go and do a thing like that and i thought that was like that was her oscar clip right there yeah. i know she didn't get a nomination or anything but that that would have been the the clip i would have pulled and been like that's an oscar scene right there yeah she's great and she's great at playing that where she's now the the step opposite robot. of the right. lively. Yeah. Right. And, and why that one of the reasons why that scene is so good and so effective is because we spent the rest of the movie in the presence of this great, vibrant character that she's created, who's funny and who is outspoken and all of that. And she's really good there. And they have great chemistry together as friends and trying to investigate what's going on. And so that works even more. And, you know, to take it even further, when we get to the very end of the movie and further spoilers, Joanna meets the same fate and you see Catherine Ross there in the grocery store and you see the two of them interacting as both the Stepfordized versions. That's even more chilling because you know what we've lost. We all love a happy ending. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jason, again, endorsing <laughs> robot wives for all. For all now, not just for well. I mean, it's everybody. a happy ending, so, right? I mean, and those are you know replacements. We never uh, see. I mean, 
these are things that are going to come up, right? Like, are humans going to be able to marry robots at some point in time? It may, it may come up. That is true. What is your thought on that? Should humans? I don't care if they're happy and they're not hurting anyone. What do I care, Josh? Yeah. The people in this movie are hurting people. They're definitely hurting anyone. Yeah. You know, Hey, I, you know, it's, it's the same argument you make about any, uh, anyone's happiness to me. It's like, I don't care. I support everyone who wants to love each other, you know, uh, consensually. Yeah. Well, I mean, can robots consent? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I never thought of that. I mean, we focus here on the idea of the real women and what's being done to them. But what about the robot replacements? Do they consent to what? Are they happy? <laughs> they seem yeah. happy, but are they happy? Can they experience Why would happiness? they be happy? They're robots. Yeah, exactly. So are so, they unhappy yeah. or they're just not able to experience that? That's what I'm saying. Probably the latter of those two. Yeah. Oh, man. This is, <laughs> I'm going to stick with real ladies. <laughs> oh, right. They're all unhappy. <laughs> when they're with me, they right. are. <laughs> That's what I was going for. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my love life is sad. Yeah. But, uh, but no, this movie is, I, I mean, I, there was one, one little thing that I noticed again, sort of like early on before anything really super ominous has even happened. And they've just moved into town. And there's the older lady who seems like she has avoided the fate of being replaced because she's like the yeah. old spinster or whatever. And she runs the newsletter and she wants to write a little article about Joanna. And I love how she starts. She's like, tell me all about yourself. And then the first question that follows from that is, what does your husband do for a living? Like, even then mm. you get the attitude of this whole town. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I thought that the transformation of the women was good. And like we said, we set the tone via the technical stuff and it, it does mostly hold together. I mean, like we we were talking about these questions and a little drag here and there, but overall the mood is there throughout. Yeah, I think so. I think the mood is key. That's what I'm saying is that like, that's what it's going for more than like, does every little technical plot element add up. And I'm glad that they shot it on location in Connecticut. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. And it also immerses you in a place that feels like it could be a real place because it is real yeah. there, where they are. How about the, and I guess this was a bigger point in the book, but like, they're like, did you know a black couple's moving to town? I think that's great. What do you think? And it's interesting because, I mean, again, you would hope at this point in time we're past all that, but, you know, in some places we're probably not. Right. And I feel like that was one thing that held up because it's like the idea of, you know, you think of this as so it's so reactionary or whatever. But after she says that, then she is like with a complete straight face saying like, oh, Stepford is one of the most liberal towns that there is. Right, the most liberal town in Connecticut or something. (laughs) Exactly. And there's a great follow-up on that too, because she mentions the black couple. And then in the end sequence where all the Stepford wives are like sort of serenely going through the grocery store, you see the black couple and they're doing exactly Mm. what the main characters did at the beginning. They're arguing the woman is like, what are we doing here? And the guy is like, give it a chance. And it's exactly what's happened to everyone else. Right, exactly. So. so I had a question for you guys. Like I, I hadn't <sighs> thought I hadn't thought of this beforehand, but when you were reading those negative reviews, which really surprised me, was the robot thing a twist? Like I, I know obviously there was a book that people could have already known what happens, but w- was this movie sold knowing that that was going to happen, or uh, was that just something that just kind of blew everybody's minds at the time? One of the things that, and I keep mentioning this, I feel like when we've done seasons that look back further. Old movie reviews used to reveal everything about the plot, including the ending. And many of the reviews that I read totally mention that. So it's not a twist if you read the the review. Um, Mm -hmm. I haven't read this book, but I saw, I think, and I don't know if it was on Wikipedia or somewhere, but I think the explanation in the book for what exactly is happening is more ambiguous. So maybe it's like it could be robots, but it's not 100% certain. Um, Mm. So maybe even people who read the book didn't quite know that's what it would be. And I don't know in terms of the marketing of the movie, if that was included, but at least certain, like if you read a review of this, you would know. Let me tell you what happens at the end of the sixth sense. <laughs> Didn't we already do that? We did a whole episode yeah, on the sixth sense. Yeah. I mean, I would think you would say like, you know, for a twist, you'll never see coming. Right. Or, you know, like the, the most shocking movie of the year, but again, this is the seventies. I was, uh, I don't know how they advertised it. Yeah. I didn't look up like a vintage trailer or anything like that. So I, one other aspect I feel like we should mention and, and give some praise to is Patrick O'Neill's performance 
that Jason lovingly recreated at the beginning of our episode as Diz, the sort of mastermind. And another way this movie holds up now is that the mastermind of this is a guy who used to work at Disney and it's, it's perfect. So I just thought he was fantastic as the kind of character where it's like, he's obviously sinister, but he has this sort of avuncular, uh, manner to him where he's like, oh, but it's all for the everyone's good or whatever. And I I just thought he was really good in that. Yeah, I, I think they would probably make him like a a, a corporate uh, head of some type now, as opposed to someone who used to work at Disney. But, you know, again, like you see like little bits of what each of these men do to like uh, kind of help the process along. Like you mentioned, the guy who records them. And then we see that artist who draws them and everything. And I think, you know, they could have uh dave pieced it together just a little tighter in some aspects but again you know um that overall we all still like this movie so uh you know just giving some opposite points of view Josh. right yeah and i mean i loved it again but like i don't disagree that there could have been other things i i wondered about the process too because you know at the very end when joanna is goes to the men's association and is about to be replaced and she actually sees her replacement who looks just like her, but we see that that version of her has these, these sort of like dark black eyes with no pupils or irises or whatever. And I wondered if that was an indication that they not are, they're not just going to kill Joanna and throw her away, but there's some sort of like mind singularity. Transfer. Yes, exactly. The yes. singularity going on there that her mind is in the new version, but is just like trapped or altered in some way. Yeah, obviously, you know, one of the movies that gets brought up as being influenced by this is Get Out. So, yes. you know, I think we see certain elements of that. Her, you know, some good movies there. Yeah, lots of yeah. good movies that came out of this and bad ones, too, certainly. So should we rate it, Josh? Yeah, let's do that. We want to rate it out of uh, five robot wives. That's what you got to do here. Three and a half for me. I uh, mostly enjoyed it all the way through. Whatever little drags in there is not really that much. And as we said, it uh, kind of uh, gives you the heebie-jeebies all the way through. Yeah, I'm really glad that you liked it. I'm going to give it four Robot Wives. I also really like it a lot. I'm glad I picked it. I think it holds up really well. Dave, how would you rate this? I'm going three and a half. Uh, It's really good. All right. Well, we'll come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of the Stepford Wives. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1975, we are talking about my pick, which is The Stepford Wives. And uh, I'm very pleased that we all like this film because that doesn't uh, always happen with what I pick. And I'm insecure. You know, I want I want people to like the movies I like. <laughs> well, Josh, I want to hear about these sequels, uh, which just sound wild to me here. You know, I was reading the the plots of the Stepford children, the Stepford husbands and return of the Stepford wives, which starred Don Johnson. So uh, which one did you watch? Yeah. And I think characterizing them as sequels is not entirely accurate. They're more like spinoffs or remakes or whatever. Um, Right. Well, you get to use the word Stepford and use the setting and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. So I did. I mean, and they're all also, they're all made for TV movies. Um, So they're not really accessible in any, uh, reasonable format, but I did just kind of put on in the background Revenge of the Stepford Wives, which was the next one that was made in 1980. That's the one with Don Johnson and uh, Sharon Glass and Julie Kavner. So yeah. it's weird to hear Marge hear Simpson, Marge Simpson as a Stepford wife, or she's the, she's one of the, the non-Stepfordy uh, characters. They must have done a Simpsons episode. That's like a Stepford Wives parody. You would think uh, so. I would imagine so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, at the end of that one, Josh, the women get revenge by tearing Diz apart. Yeah, Diz is a character in that one, although he's played by a different actor. And I didn't I didn't watch the whole thing. I watched a horrible quality version on YouTube with like Dutch subtitles or something. And it definitely wasn't worth actually seeking out. But um, yeah, that one, at least I think, attempts to be kind of a follow up. Sharon Gless plays like a reporter who comes to Stepford to try to do an article about why it's so crime free. And then of course they can't let her figure out what's really going on, but they completely change the concept of why the wives are Stepfordy instead of being replaced by robots. They're all like brainwashed and they take these pills and they have these like brainwashing machines that look like, you know, hair dryers, old fashioned hair dryers at a hair salon. So it really completely changes the whole idea of it. Um, 
And yeah, I can't recommend that. And then there was the Stepford Children in 1987 in which they- uh, Barbara Eden. Yeah. I Dream of Jeannie herself. And they, mm -hmm. they replaced the teenagers to make them well-behaved. And then- Yeah, that just sounds like a- you know, I, at least they took a shot, but still like an uh, ill-advised shot there. Oh, so. yeah. I think all of these are ill-advised. And then, of course, reversing it and making the Stepford Husbands in 1996 with apparently Louise Fletcher as sort of the Diz-like character. And Donna Mills. Yeah. I feel like that entirely misses the point of this, which is that you can't just reverse it. It's about like institutionalized sexism and stuff and just... I mean, you could. Uh, what if you had a woman write it from their point of view and, you know... Uh, going the opposite way of like what the what uh, kind of idealized robot husband would be. Like. Yeah, and I haven't watched it. It does not have like a good reputation. I doubt it's being that thoughtful. I think they're basically just switching the genders and doing the same thing. So that yeah. doesn't work. Besides, you can't keep a robot husband in your nightstand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's good. So, hey, Josh, uh, on the uh, Stepford Children, yeah, I I pulled this from the um the uh, the plot. Laura digs open the grave of Stephen's first wife and finds an android in the coffin. So they're burying the robot wives. Yeah, why would here. you do that? They don't biodegrade. You're just going to find them later. Yeah, you just recycle the parts. Everybody knows that's what you do with robots. Right. Yeah, I, I'm sure none of these movies were very good. And of course, none of the creative team, you know, William Goldman and, and Ira Levin and Brian Forbes, none of those people were involved with any of those sequels or with that remake from 2004, which was directed by Frank Oz and written by Paul Rudnick and obviously meant to be a comedy. I had read uh, that this was the first one was supposed to be directed by Brian De Palma, which would have been super interesting. Yeah. But Goldman acts that. Yeah, I don't know if I mean, I'm not sure De Palma would have made it good in the way that I like it currently, but he I'm sure would have made something good and interesting. Uh, I would have been curious to see that. That would have been uh, Gene Seberg and Tuesday Weld both bandied about for Joanna. But my favorite was. That Brian Forbes said Diane Keaton turned the role down because her analyst didn't like the script. So we can bring that back to Woody Allen. Yeah, imagine yeah. Woody Allen directing the version of this that starred Diane Keaton. Yeah. Wow. Josh, uh, you were a big fan of Desperate Housewives and Brie Vanderkamp was a step for life. Yeah, I was. I mean, that's one of those shows that, that went off the rails very quickly. But I, I remember the first season of that being very fun and campy and clearly influenced by the Stepford Wives. But yeah, and we know that the term is in pop culture as, you know, when you see uh, uh, someone uh, of uh, displaying certain qualities, like acting like a Stepford. Yeah, I feel like that's the main legacy of this film and that even people who not only people who haven't seen this film, but I'm, I would imagine there might be quite a lot of people who know that term and don't even know that it comes from a film. Right. I think that's true. I think I was probably one of those people back in the day. Yeah. So. And you know better now. Nah, I'm just looking for a Stepford wife now, Josh. Uh, Brian Forbes had an interesting career. We don't know really much about him. None of us had ever seen his other movies. He was nominated for an Oscar for The Angry Silence and won a BAFTA for that screenplay. Yeah, I post Stepford Wives, his you know the legacy of his career is not a whole lot. This was later in his career. He directed four more movies after this that I was not familiar with, and his final credit was in 1992 as a screenwriter on Chaplin, along with William Goldman, actually. And he lived until 2013, so he had a longer retirement, but, uh, you know, didn't work after that, so. Well, I mean, he was the head of EMI Films for a while, um, but and that, I guess, was before this. And then in the 70s, he worked with Elton John and Bernie Taupin a lot, so he's had, he did a lot of cool different things. Oh, he did, yeah. And, and I'm curious, I think some of his earlier films, I looked up and... Uh, Seance on a Wet Afternoon and Whistle Down the Wind, which are both early British like thriller-ish things, melodrama thrillers that he made looked interesting, but I haven't seen anything else that he's done. Yeah. Uh, have you ever seen anything that William Goldman wrote? That I have, yes. As you said, <laughs> he is uh, one of the major screenwriters in, in Hollywood history and also a guru of screenwriting. I, Jason, have you read his screenwriting books? I, I have uh, one of them at, uh, at least one of them at the house. I haven't dug into it yet, but I'd like to read probably uh, at least, maybe probably all of them. So, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, we, of course, uh, here at Awesome Movie Year are uh, fans of Rob Reiner. 
And he worked yeah. with Rob Reiner on The Princess Bride and Misery. Great movie. Yeah, both yeah. of those great movies. Yeah, um, agreed. Marathon Man and All the President's Men. Those are all after this. So, you know, quite a uh, uh, uh Oscars for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and All the President's Men. Yeah. Josh, do you think if I read those books, I might actually become a success one day? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. It's not an <laughs> insulting way. So Ira Levin, Rosemary's Baby, The Boys from Brazil and Sliver among the many books that he's put out there. Yeah, I mean, he he only wrote a handful of novels, but a lot of them adapted into major films. I haven't seen The Boys. I've read The Boys from Brazil, but I've never seen the movie. And uh, I think I saw Sliver a very long time ago. I never read that book, but I did read Rosemary's Baby and the sequel to Rosemary's Baby that he wrote, Son of Rosemary, which is not very good and was never made into a movie. Um, I think my favorite connection in this is Tina Louise, who played Charmaine, was Ginger on Gilligan's Island. And Judith Baldwin, who played Patricia, replaced Tina Louise in the role of Ginger in Rescue from Gilligan's Island and the castaways of Gilligan's Island. That is crazy. And in more Gilligan's Island trivia, Tina Louise currently is the only surviving member of the Gilligan's Island cast. <sighs> she did win a Golden Globe for Best uh, New Star, I think, in God's Little Acre in 1958. Yeah, good for her. So, yeah, I mean, it was interesting to me that a lot of the, the main stars of this, I mean, both Catherine Ross and Paula Prentice kind of wound their careers down not long after this and only had sporadic roles in TV and film. And I think we talked about this when we did our episode on The Graduate, how Catherine Ross never really became a big star that we would might have guessed based on some of these early roles and how good she is. She was also won that new star Golden Globe for The Graduate and had a supporting actress nod, I think, for Voyage of the Dam, which I also think she won a Saturn Award for. But uh, most of the kids, you'll remember her from the hit movie Donnie Darko. Yeah, that was a sort of a comeback thing. And and Paula Prentice also, she was in a horror movie that I really like called I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House in 2016, which was her first feature film role in 30 years. And I'm not sure what specifically about that movie had her return, but she did do that. I think the Parallax View, uh, What's New Pussycat, Catch-22. And she has a primetime Emmy for the sitcom He and She. Boom, Josh. Peter Masterson, the husband. Uh, we we might have seen him in uh, in the heat of the night when we covered that and The Exorcist, which we didn't cover because we haven't done that year yet. But he also co-wrote the book for the best little whorehouse in Texas, the musical. Oh yeah, that is that is something. I think we've talked about that for some reason. But um, he, he's uh, Mary Stuart Masterson's dad, who plays one of the kids in this, and uh, we know her as a, a fine actress from the eighties and nineties most of the time. Yeah, and this was her screen debut as a child, playing her actual father's child. And uh, Peter Masterson later in his career was a director and producer, and not so much an actor, but kept working for a long time. So uh, yeah, it's just it was interesting to me. That, you know, between him and Catherine Ross and Paula Prentice, these are people who didn't have these like long on-screen careers following this film, but all I think are really good in, in their particular roles here. Right. And uh, I mean, I have to look, but I think a lot of these were they had a lot of work in theater and the actor's studio and stuff like that. Josh, did you ever read the short story by Ray Bradbury, Marionettes, Inc.? I did not. Uh, that's what that's what is uh, they say might have been the inspiration for this. one. I could see that. I mean, this definitely has a very Ray Bradbury or Twilight Zone kind of feel. I think one of the reviews that I read mentioned the Twilight Zone in a derogatory way. I mean, not toward the Twilight Zone, but toward this film. Um, but it definitely has that kind of feel to it. And, you know, this is, continues to have a major influence. You mentioned Get Out. I mean, we just had Don't Worry, Darling, which is not a good movie, but is a very oh, much yeah. influence. I don't know. Did you do a Piecing It Together episode on that, Dave? No, we talked about it on the trailer episode, me and Jason, but uh, we didn't end up doing a full episode. Yeah. Did this movie come not up worth there? Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> right. I'm glad I didn't watch it. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> but it actually addresses your whole idea. It's it's all about incels. I mean, spoiler alert for like the end of that, the twist of that movie, which is stupid, but yeah. it's very much about that. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's certainly like the kind of thing that if it was done better, it could have been a good modern spin on this sort of story. It just was executed very poorly. Mm -hmm. So do you have any other? Have you ever, have you ever fired Shia LaBeouf from a film? <laughs> no, I'll fire him from this podcast if we want to get him as a guest so we can fire him. <laughs> I'd like to hear what he has to say. about. The Stepford Wives? Anything, really. Okay, I can do without it. But uh, 
Are there any other movies that you like, Jason, that 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 this is kind of influenced? I think her was the one that I really would gravitate towards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good one. And Get Out, obviously, is another. But I, I'm, I mean, like I said, I'm glad you guys like this. And uh, I'm glad that, that I picked it. And is there anything else on the legacy of this that you want to mention, Jason? Josh, uh, be in the lookout uh, in your mailbox for my wedding invitation to me and my robot wife. I can't wait. I'll be there. So that is the Stepford Wives. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can contact our robot wives online and on social media. And they might contact you first because they're going to be taking over the world soon enough. Indeed. Josh, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jay Harris Comedy or Jason Harris Comedy on all those sites, which are, are they even sites, social platforms? Who knows sure. what's going on anymore? Eat This Comedy is also a thing. And go for Jason on Letterboxd. Uh, you can find some of my stuff at joshbellhateseverything.com and more current things at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, at Signal Bleed on Twitter, and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And I think there's a link to my Stepford Wives article on Letterboxd that I wrote a couple years ago. Um, oh, yeah. We all need to hear so mm-hmm. much more yeah, about what you think you of do. this movie. You do. Go read it. <laughs> I expect a report on it next time. <laughs> and listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piece of Get Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod and check me out on Letterboxd by David Rosen. And Dave has promised if you request, he will do a special episode of Don't Worry Darling just for you. Yeah, that's that's I'm sure there's a lot of people clamoring to hear that, you know, a year after that movie came out or whatever it is. Do I have to watch it again or do I just do it from memory? Nope, you got to watch it all again. Yeah, God damn it. That sounds good. So, Jason, what are we talking about in our next episode? Josh, Sight and Sound recently rated it the number one film of all time, which probably means I'll hate it. We'll talk about John Dealman, 23 Quad de Commerce, 1080 Bruxelles. And Jason will do that excellent accent throughout the episode. <laughs> I can't wait. Tune in next time for John Dealman. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.